When Donald Trump, the candidate, was running for office, he mocked his opponent's experience in public service, and he elevated his own lack of public service experience into a calling card, or maybe better put, a golden ticket that gained him entry into the White House. Well, on today's episode, Leon Panetta makes the case for public service. He is, of course, former Secretary of Defense, former Director of the CIA, former White House Chief of Staff, former congressman, and former first lieutenant in the Army, to name just a few of the jobs on his long resume. And boy, does he have stories, juicy, revealing stories. He also shares his views on the current state of the country's affairs. And he's got a heck of a personal tale to tell, too, about growing up as a first-generation American. This is what it takes a podcast about passion, vision, and perseverance from the Academy of Achievement. I'm Alice Winkler. Adame, this child is gifted. And I heard that enough that I started to believe it. If you have the opportunity, not a perfect opportunity, and you don't take it, you may never have another chance. It all was so clear. It it was just like the picture started to form itself. There was no way in which a lie could prevail over the truth darkness over light, death over life. Every day I wake up and decide, today I'm going to love my life. Decide. My advice is, if they're going to break your leg once when you go in that place, stay out of there. (laughs) And then along come these differential experiences that you don't look for, you don't plan for, but boy, you better not miss them. We govern in a democracy, either by leadership, or by crisis. If leadership is there and willing to take the risks associated with leadership, then I believe that we can avoid crisis or certainly contain crisis. But make no mistake about it, if leadership is not there, then we will govern by crisis. And you can do that. You can govern by crisis. You can wait for crisis to become so bad that it demands that you do something about it. But there is a price to be paid for that. And the price is that you lose the trust of the American people. Throughout his long career, Leon Panetta has been dedicated to the proposition of governing by leadership. That's what made him Washington's go-to guy for decades. Effective, honest, straight up, ethical. And he seemed to have a hand in it all. Civil rights, the budget, the environment, the military, intelligence. He could have been a businessman, certainly, or a doctor or an engineer. So what compelled him to spend his life in government? That was the question interviewer Mary Jordan of The Washington Post opened up with when she sat down to have a conversation with Panetta for the Academy of Achievement in September of 2017. Well, there wasn't a lightning bolt. Uh, It wasn't St. Paul, (laughs) you know, suddenly getting a, a, a lightning bolt out of the sky. It was really something that grew on me for several reasons. Three reasons, actually. Reason one. I'm the son of immigrants, Italian immigrants. And my parents used to always emphasize that it was important to give back to the country because what the country had given them. Uh, used to ask my father why he came all of that distance to, to this country. Uh, leaving family. Uh, it was a poor area of Italy, but he had family, he had you know, p- 
people that he related to back there. Why, why would you do that? And I never forgot his response, which was that the reason your mother and I came here is because we really believed we could give our children a better life, which in many ways is the American dream. Reason two, serving as a lieutenant in the Army in the mid-1960s. The experience of working with a broad cross-section of people from across the country, and that was the case. I mean, in those days, because of the draft, you had people from everywhere across the country that were part of the military. And the experience of working with them and finding that you really could come together on a common mission in terms of duty to the country and accomplishing that mission, working together as a team, that really inspired me uh, about the importance of uh, really being able to work together to achieve a, a mission. Reason three, John F. Kennedy. Young president who said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. I was really an inspiration. And at that time, public service was really a higher calling. And I really felt that way. I felt it was really something important to do, so. Do you think that's changed now? I think it has changed. And that worries Leon Panetta. This conversation was recorded at the institute he started, the Panetta Institute for Public Policy, to inspire young people to get involved in public life. Mr. Panetta told Mary Jordan that the health of our democracy is dependent on people giving back. Our democracy and our ability as a society to give our children a better life, like his father did, an immigrant to this country. Who didn't have a hell of a lot of education. I think at most my father, you know, maybe went through a couple grades of grammar school uh, in, in Italy, you know, if there was a grammar school, uh, he probably went through a little bit of schooling. But most of his life was really dedicated to hard work and, uh, you know, he fought in World War I and left his family to go to war. And often used to describe how brutal war was. Uh, in, uh, this was a, a battle in the Piave Valley, and I've never forgotten him describing having, you know, facing the Germans and uh, being under an, an artillery barrage and trying to escape from that artillery barrage, and he, he actually got wounded uh, as a result of that, and uh, used to talk about that a lot. Anyway, you know, he had, he'd been through some, some tough times, and uh, he, had, he was the 13th in his family, and he had several brothers who came over to this country, you know, like, uh, like many other immigrant families, made it to California, made it here to Monterey, and uh, my dad opened a restaurant downtown Monterey during the war. And uh, he worked at that job almost around the clock. I mean, you know, it, Monterey was a jumping town. We had, uh, you know, they were catching a lot of sardines. We had the cannery row, which Steinbeck wrote about, uh, was uh, jumping in those days. But in addition to that, uh, we had a military post called Fort Ord that was training young men from across the country for the battlefields of World War II. And the last stop was Monterey for civilization before he went to war. So you can imagine, you know, a lot of soldiers uh, going through Monterey. Did you ever think then as a little boy in that restaurant seeing all those soldiers that you would be the Secretary of Defense one day? Uh, not, not one iota 
Um, one thing I do remember is that my parents used to invite some of those uh, young soldiers, uh, particularly the Italian ones, from New York uh, to our house for the holidays. And uh, I remember as a young boy looking at them and thinking, these guys are going to go to war. And uh, I never forgot that, uh, particularly when I did become Secretary of Defense. And I had the responsibility to deploy our men and women into harm's way. I always remembered back to looking at those young men who were celebrating Christmas with my parents. And in just a few weeks would be either in the Pacific or in Europe uh, fighting in a war. Those childhood experiences at his father's restaurant also shaped his tenure at the Office of Management and Budget, when he was the man in charge of the budget of the federal government, among other things. My father believed you work hard, you earn money, and you spend it wisely. And so he always used to pay for everything by cash. And when I got, I remember getting a, uh, a gasoline credit card for the first time. Those things were just coming out at the time. And I got, I got a gasoline credit card. And he was really angry that I'd gotten a credit card. He said, what the hell are you doing? Why don't you just pay for it in cash? And he, he always believed in cash business. I mean, the restaurant in those days was all cash business. And he believed, you know, people pay in cash. That's the way you're supposed to do it. Uh, you're, not, you're not supposed to do it by credit. Did that have any effect when you were trying to balance the budget of the United States? Yeah, it did, as a matter of fact. I mean, you know, my, my parents did not spend their money in crazy ways. Uh, they were very frugal in the way they handled it. I mean, they, you know, they spent it wisely. They didn't buy fancy things. Uh, I remember getting up with him early in the morning, putting irrigation pipes out in the field, and, you know, I, I remember as those fruit trees, we had walnuts, but we also had some fruit trees. As those trees got older, uh, he would pick, you know, peaches and apricots, and I'd hold the ladder for him. And he'd be whistling, really enjoying, you know, the work uh, and the open air. And, uh, and I, always, I always remembered that, you know, he really enjoyed the fruits of his work. We'll come back in a few minutes to Leon Panetta's frugality as a leader. But first, a story about Panetta's grandfather, who also shaped his path in the government, and his views about public policy in some unexpected ways. Yeah, I, I was very close to my nonu. Uh, that's what we, we, we called uh, grandfathers uh, in Italian, my nonu and nonna. Um, and my grandfather had come over in 1938. Uh, my grandfather was a big guy. Uh, he was over six feet. Uh, he had been in the Merchant Marine and used to sail, sail around the world in the old sailing ships. I mean, I, I, I remember now, I, when I went to Australia as uh, CIA director and Secretary of Defense, and going to Sydney that my grandfather used to talk about how beautiful Sydney was. And he went there in the old sailing ships and uh, came to Monterey, visit my mother, uh, actually did some fishing in Monterey. And then uh, the war broke out. And uh, my grandfather uh, was not allowed to go back to Italy. So the, the one thing he did, because both my parents were working in the restaurant, my father was the chef, 
uh, and my mother handled the cash register. And so my grandfather basically took care of me, uh, you know, and my brother. Uh, my brother was a little older, so he was, you know, out running around in the neighborhood. Uh, we were in an Italian neighborhood, so everybody kind of took care of each other. But um, I know who really took care of me, and he used to walk with me. He used to put me on his shoulders, and we'd go down to the ocean together. And then suddenly, because of the war, a decision was made that because he was an alien and he wasn't a U.S. citizen, sounds a lot like the problems we're having today, uh, there was a decision made that he might be a threat to national security, and aliens like him might be a threat to national security, so that they, had, they were required to move inland. This was in 1942. It's a little-known chapter of American history, but the executive order that allowed for the internment of Japanese Americans, Executive Order 9066, also allowed for 600,000 Italians and Americans of Italian descent to have their freedom of movement curtailed and another 10,000 to be forcibly relocated, particularly away from coastal areas. Panetta's Nanu, he told interviewer Mary Jordan, was in that latter group. Now, you know, they didn't set up uh, camps like they did for the Japanese, thank God. But the fact was that my grandfather had to move away from the family uh, because of that requirement. And um, I, I was asking myself as a young boy who loved my grandfather, my nonu, I said, what, why is this happening? And my parents really didn't have a good explanation. You know, they were, they were trying to figure it out as well. So, but I do remember driving with them and my grandfather to, uh, to San Jose, uh, and we were able to locate a, a boarding house in San Jose where a lot of other Italians had to move to, and leaving him, and I can't tell you the impact that that had on me as a young boy uh, leaving my nonno. Uh, I never forgot that experience, uh, and I, I guess it's the first time as a young boy that you experience that something's not right, that in this country where you're kind of growing up and enjoying life and going to school and you know you have kids uh, that you, you, you grow up with, uh, you don't really think about whether you're different. Great thing about America, then, frankly, is that you know we all grow up together. But then suddenly, when something like that happens, not because there is any kind of security justification here, but it's because you're Italian and you're an alien. And are we making similar mistakes now? Yeah, I think I think we are. We are, I deeply believe, and it's not only because I'm the son of immigrants, but I think we're a land of immigrants. America's a land of immigrants. I mean, my God, our forefathers were immigrants to this country. Uh, pioneers were immigrants. We had immigrations from across the world because our fundamental value in this country is that we respect people because of who they are. There is, there is a dignity associated with people, no matter where the hell they come from. 
whether they come from Italy or Ireland or Germany or Asia or, or Africa, wherever the hell they come from, they're human beings. And they deserve our respect. And they deserve the dignity of being a human being. And America has been great about that. I mean, we, we are a country that has welcomed immigrants. And it's what, what's made us strong. We are a strong country because of immigrants who have come to this country and now claim America as their land. We're strong because of that. And that's what the Statue of Liberty is all about. I mean, the Statue of Liberty so, basically right. makes the point that we are a nation that welcomes people to this country. And now my fear is that we've kind of turned that around. We've turned that on its head. And suddenly, the, the values that I thought were so important to what makes America a strong country you know, we're beginning at the highest levels to reject some of those values. I think that's a bad mistake. Are you talking about the travel ban? The I'm talking about the travel ban. I'm talking about DACA and these young kids uh, who are, you know, they're not guilty of anything. Uh, you know, maybe their parents did come here uh, in an undocumented way, but why should the children who are innocent you know, bear the penalties for, for what their parents, the sins of their parents. I mean, that's crazy. And these kids are getting an education. They're, they're growing up in this country. They're getting jobs. I, you know, we have those kids in the military who are serving in the, in, the, in the U.S. Army. And they're putting their lives on the line for this country. Are we suddenly going to make the decision to deport these kids? That's crazy. That's not what America's all about. Leon Panetta's experience having to separate from his grandfather obviously made him very passionate on the issue of immigration, but it also led him to take a controversial stance during his days in the government, a stance that nearly derailed his career. The story needs a little setup. When Panetta came out of the Army in 1966, he went to work as a legislative assistant to a Republican senator from California, Thomas Kuechel. And in that job, he helped work on the civil rights bills that President Johnson would sign into law. In 69, when Richard Nixon became president, Panetta went to work at the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, where he soon became the director of the Office of Civil Rights. Leon Panetta was young and eager and determined to enforce the new civil rights laws. Particularly with regards to, uh, to education, equal education. And a big focus of that, obviously, was on the South because... Uh, Children had been divided by race for almost 200 years. Black kids went to black schools and white kids went to white schools. And that's what Board of the Brown versus the Board of Education was all about, was the decision that a separate education is inherently in unequal. And so uh, I was required as director of the Office for Civil Rights to go into these school districts and make sure that they were breaking down the dual school system and taking steps to desegregate these schools, and, and we were making good progress. Problem was that Nixon had cut a deal with the South uh, in what was called the Southern Strategy. Uh, he was worried about Rockefeller when he was running for president, uh, Nelson Rockefeller, who was moderate Republican. And so he cut a deal with a lot of the Southerners that he would, uh, he, he would back off of tough civil rights enforcement. Uh, they supported him, it's called the Southern Strategy. And you know, I was aware of that, but I, but I really did not believe when I became director of the Office for Civil Rights that we would retreat on an issue as fundamental 
as whether or not we give children, young children, uh, the right to an equal education. And, and also because Nixon himself had supported civil rights when he was in the Congress, when he was a senator, and he's a Quaker by religion. You know, they believe in civil rights. So I thought, you know, uh, this is going to be tough. We still have, we have this political deal, but at the same time, you know, I think doing, enforcing civil rights laws is the right thing to do. So I was doing that. Uh, I knew there were, there were political pressures to back off, but I continued to do it. And I kind of made that a very fundamental decision. And I, I tell the students here at the Panetta Institute, you, you may face this decision, which is a decision between whether you do what you believe is right, whether you do something that abides by your conscience, or whether you make the decision that you're not going to abide by what's right because you can advance your career. Pretty fundamental decision that I think a lot of people have to face. And you have to decide, you know, what course do I take? And I remember talking to my wife about that. I, you know, that I, I, I was worried that I was getting a lot of pressure and I didn't know whether, you know, it was going to result in, in my getting fired or, or whether I, you know, was, should capitulate. And we, I kind of made the basic decision, no, I'm going to stick to what I think is right. I worked on this legislation. I believe it's right. I've got to do what's right. Now, part of that is the Jesuits uh, at Santa Clara who uh, you know, taught me about right and wrong. Um, but part of it was just that gut feeling that and I, I remember Tom Kuechel saying to me, when I first went back as a legislative assistant, he brought me into the room. And it were just a couple of us. And he said, you guys are going to be tempted. Understand that. This town tries to, to, to go at you at, to try to impact on my vote. But I want you to remember that we're here to protect the rights of the American people and the rights of the people of California. And I also want you to remember one thing. When you get up in the morning, you have to look at yourself in the mirror. So remembering what Kiko said, I continue to enforce it. Uh, one morning, a uh, newspaper lands uh, at, the, uh, at the door. And we open it up, and there's an article that said that uh, Panetta has resigned as director of the Office for Civil Rights. I hadn't resigned, but you know that was what the article said. And I, so I, I remember going to work, uh, going to visit the secretary, uh, Bob Finch, and saying, uh, you know, Bob, uh, there's, there's an article in, in the morning paper that says I resigned, and we're denying it because I haven't resigned. And he said, oh, no, that's the right thing to do. You know, keep denying it. It's just, a, just one of these rumors that, that are out there. But then they had, uh, as they do now, a uh, press conference, daily press conference, with the uh, press secretary to the president. And it was Ron Ziegler at the time, uh, working for Richard Nixon. And Ziegler was asked, what about this article that says Panetta has resigned? And Ziegler said, uh, that's correct. He, he has resigned. <laughs> and I said, I looked at that and I said, what the hell's, this, this basically means I'm fired. Panetta was only 27 or 28 at the time and thought he was watching his political career go up in smoke. He was also worried about family, a wife and two kids with a third on the way. 
But the thing is, his career was really just beginning. He returned to California to practice law, switched parties, and became a Democrat, and then got elected to Congress from the district that includes Monterey. Panetta was re-elected eight times, serving from 1977 to 1993. The most important lesson he learned during his very first term? Knowledge is power. And if you're a member of Congress and you know an issue better than anybody, that's power. That's power. And the budget was an issue that very few members understood. It's complicated stuff. Uh, the budget process is, uh, you know, it's very complex. Uh, how you put budgets together, you know, how you try to get them passed, what, what do all these numbers mean, et cetera. But I, I got very interested in that uh, at, when I went back. And uh, I remember getting on the budget committee because what the budget gives you is the opportunity to see the entire government, to see all of the priorities that we spend money on and to determine what our priorities should be. And frankly, you know, as a member of Congress, understanding what are important priorities for this country and what, where you want to spend your resources is, uh, is probably the, the most important responsibility you have. When we're, you were going line by line, hour by hour, into the night looking at that, what surprised you about how we were spending our money? Well. You, when you really look at this stuff and you go line item into every program in a department, which I, I did both as chairman of the budget committee, but I also did it as director of the Office of Management and Budget when Clinton appointed me to that job. You really do look at individual programs and whether they work or not. And the one thing I found a lot were programs that were not working very well. It's easy to, to pass new programs. But it's very tough to make those programs deliver what they promise. You were the last time the United States balanced a budget was yeah. under you. Yeah. When you look at the trillions of dollars of debt today, what do you think? Well, I, I'm very discouraged by the fact <laughs> that we sacrificed an awful lot. Uh, to get a balanced budget, not only a balanced budget, we had a surplus. Uh, and it took a, took a lot of sacrifice. It's not easy. I mean, these are hard decisions. If you're going to do the right thing on the federal budget, you know, trillions of dollars that are involved in the, in the federal budget, and you're going to try to discipline that budget, then you've got to deal with non-defense programs. You've got to deal with defense. You've got to deal with what are called entitlements a number of programs like Medicare and Social Security and others that provide benefits to uh, people. Uh, and you got to raise taxes. you got to pay for that stuff. And so we, we made tough decisions. And so I, you know, I, I'm very discouraged that having balanced the budget, having achieved a surplus in the budget, having spilt a lot of blood, political blood, in the process of doing that, that within a few years that was thrown out the window and we are now back in high deficits uh, with a huge debt and are going to have to do this all over again because, frankly, our economy is not going to be strong. And why do you think it's have. important that we take down the debt? Because, frankly, if we don't, if we continue to do things basically by borrowing money 
and by building up what we have now, which is about a $20 trillion debt. Who bears the cost for that? Our children are going to bear the cost for that. Because that means we're going to, we're going to have extraordinary high interest payments. I mean, interest payments, if we stay on the course we're, we're on, interest payments on the debt are going to exceed what we spend in the defense budget. It's going to be over $800 billion just on, on interest payments. What does that mean? It takes away our ability, our resources, to deal with whatever your priorities are. You know, whether your priority is defense or education or, or, or housing or protecting parks, whatever the hell your, your priority is, we will not have the resources to be able to invest in those priorities. That's the fact. As a congressman and as director of the Office of Management and Budget, Leon Panetta was seen as the king of fiscal discipline. So it is no wonder then that when the White House was mired in confusion and infighting during Bill Clinton's first year in office, he tapped Panetta to come fix up the mess. I can remember at some point uh, that I think it was Al Gore, who was a classmate of mine in the Congress, he was vice president, uh, came up to me and said, you know, Leon, uh, the president's thinking of appointing you as uh, chief of staff. And I said to Al, I said, Al, I said, uh, you know, I think the White House, the operation of the White House is chaotic. Uh, There was very little discipline. There was no kind of clear chain of command. I'd go to meetings in the White House, and there sometimes would be 30 or 40 people in those meetings, everybody talking, nothing coming out of it, no no decision. Uh, There were a number of people... Uh, similar to what, what's happened in this administration, uh, of people who were appointed who had kind of these general titles, uh, consultant to the president, consular to the president, but they had no specific responsibilities. The people just basically walked in uh, to a meeting, said things, and then walked out and had no responsibility. So I said to, to Gore, I said, you know, I don't think so. I don't think I want that job. And, uh, and Al said, that they really do need you. Uh, to do that. So the next thing I know, I'm being called up to uh, Camp David. And I fly up with the vice president and his wife to uh, Camp David, go to the president's cabin up there. We walk in, I walk in, and it's Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, Al Gore, and Tipper Gore, and me. And I thought, boy, am I screwed. Uh, as a result of that. I mean, I, they're going to come in hard for me to, to uh, take the job of chief of staff. So uh, the president says, I really need you to take this job. I, I need you to provide that discipline. And I said, Mr. President, look, we've just passed your budget. We're passing appropriations bills. It's really an important legacy. You're, everything you've done on the budget is important. I think I'm really important to you as OMB director to Uh, continue to work on that. I I think you need me more in that job. And I never forgot what he said. (laughs) Bill Clinton, he looked at me and he said, you know, Leon, you can be the greatest OMB director in the history of the world, but nobody's going to remember you if the White House is falling apart. (laughs) And I never forgot that. And I said, all right, you got the president. I said, I'll do this. I remember going back to the White House. Uh, you, know, you wonder if you made the right decision, but I said, okay, I'll, I'm going to do this. 
And uh, I went to my predecessor, a nice guy named Mac McClarty. And I said, Mac, I said, I need, a, I need an organization chart for the White House. He thought about it and he says, you know, Leon, I don't believe I have one of those. <laughs> I thought, oh man, am I in trouble. To get the job done, Liam Panetta says he relied on his military experience more than anything. He made that org chart and got rid of all those amorphous counsels to the president. He wrested control and was not, for a little while, a very popular guy. It's not easy. It's uh, particularly when you just kind of walk into the White House and all these people have kind of developed their little areas of power. They've all kind of tried to figure out how they could advance their own careers and their own egos. And suddenly you're walking in there as the uh, chief uh, law enforcement officer and uh, you're trying to tell them what to do. And, you know, there are a lot of knives out. And I remember, you know, bringing my staff with me to the White House. I brought some key people with me, because I wanted people to watch my back while all these knives were out. But I also realized that, and by the way, I, this is a question I often get about. When you take over OMB or CIA or Department of Defense, how the hell do you make it work? And the key to it is that you really have to build a team that are working together when you look at the Trump White House now, do you have any thoughts? Look at it, X-ray vision, Leon Panetta coming in. What would you do? There's, looks like there's a little bit of need over there. Well, I mean, the fact is uh, John Kelly, obviously been named chief of staff, um, is a good friend. He's a guy who uh, worked for me at the Defense Department as my military aide. Uh, I know John very well. Uh, and John, when he was appointed to that job, called me and said, uh, what the hell do I do? Because uh, you know, he, he knew that it's the kind of chaos we talked about where you know, people are running around, no chain of command, no, uh, no order, uh, and, uh, and no discipline. And I said, uh, I said, John, in many ways, what you're facing is very similar to what I faced in the Clinton administration. Uh, and you got to you got to do the following. You've got to establish a strong chain of command with you at the top. You have to establish a process of decision making. How do you develop policy and options for the president so that those options are presented to the president, the president can make the decision? Because you're facing a ton of, of crises. So you need to have a process to deal with that and present those options to the president. You once described it like the ER. Yeah, like no, no, it's a triage. You've got to basically, you're, you're being hit by all kinds of crises, uh, by, uh, you know, there's a lot of blood all over the place, political blood all over the place, and you've got to deal with it, and you've got to put it in an order in order to confront it. You cannot just run around. You can't, I mean, if you don't have that, then people all run around like chickens with their heads cut off. And you cannot have chaos in the White House. You can't govern by chaos. So you've got to bring, bring some order to that. And you've got to stay focused. I mean, it's very much, I mean, in the military, frankly, if you have a mission to take the hill and you're suddenly taking incoming fire and there's all kinds of explosions going on around you, you've got to deal with that, but you've got to stay focused on the mission. And it's very true in the White House. So the real issue is whether or not President Trump wants that discipline, whether he wants to abide by that. And if he does, 
then you can get some order restored. If he doesn't, if he makes the decision he is not going to be confined to any process, he's going to basically do whatever tweeting he wants to do or say whatever he wants to say, then uh, I think they're going to continue to have some serious problems. In the middle of all these crises, you're really famous for your laugh <laughs> and a prank. That famous day that you rode into the White House grounds on a horse with the music from Bonanza, the old Western yeah, TV yeah, show, yeah, yeah. Sing Happy Birthday. <laughs> Tell us a few more pranks that we'd like to hear. Uh, yeah, there's probably some I can't talk about. But <laughs> they're, you know, you've got it. You know, it's really important. We're talking about the White House, talking about these other things. But I think, particularly in the White House, that it's very easy to lose sight of your humanity. And very frankly, when you lose sight of your humanity, it makes you less of a leader. And so the ability to kind of stay in touch with humanity and, and being able to, to laugh and being able to enjoy uh, people and enjoy experiences, it's that human part of what all of us are about. And the ability to stay in touch with that, I think is really important, particularly for presidents of the United States, to stay in touch with the human side of life. Leon Panetta thought being White House Chief of Staff was the end of his trajectory in Washington. During Bill Clinton's second term, he and his wife Sylvia headed back to Monterey to start their Institute for Public Policy at California State. And we really enjoyed it. We were working at it, trying to inspire young people to get involved in public life. And uh, I, I really did not think about uh, even the possibility of going back to Washington. And then later you got a call from John Podesta, who was running the Barack Obama's transition. And as he tells the story, he says he called you to ask if you'd be interested in running the CIA. And Podesta says, I got a cold silence. And finally, Leon Panetta said, you're kidding, right? <laughs> That's right. There was that silence. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, because, you know, I'd worked on budgets. I'd worked on, I'd worked on ocean issues. Uh, you know, I uh, was chairman of an oceans commission. I, I did some work on what was called the Iraq Study Group. Uh, with uh, uh, Jim Baker and uh, uh, Lee Hamilton uh, chaired that group. We actually went to Iraq, and I really enjoyed that. But, you know, my, my background was really not in intelligence, although I'd been an intelligence officer in the Army. And I said, what's this about? He, he said, uh, the president thinks that you can help restore the trust of the CIA. And, I, you know, I thought about that. Uh, I was still nervous about, you know, whether it was something that really was a good fit. But then when the president called and made the point again that he really felt that uh, I could restore uh, the trust of it, I, you know, and I said to the president, I said, look, Mr. President, if I take this job, I am going to present you with the intelligence that you're going to need to make some very tough decisions. That's what the CIA is all about. And I said, I'm going to give you the truth, whether you like it or not. 
And he said, that's what I want. There were many highs and lows during Panetta's tenure at the CIA. One of the lowest of the lows was certainly the deadly attack on the CIA in Afghanistan. A group of officers went to meet someone they had good reason to believe would help them get close to al-Qaeda's second-in-command. Instead, that man turned out to be a suicide bomber. The explosion, uh, I remember going there, you could see some of the... uh, the remnants of that bomb almost 100 yards away. Uh, and it killed seven of our officers and wounded a number of others. And that was, it was a real blow. I don't think we've, we had lost that many officers uh, in one explosion since, uh, I think, losing, uh, having one of the embassies getting blown up in, uh, in Lebanon. Uh, the Monday after that bombing, you held a meeting at the CIA, and according to someone in the room, you said, we're in a war. We cannot afford to be hesitant. The fact is, we're going to do the right thing, and my approach is going to be to work that much harder, and we're going to beat those sons of bitches. Tell us what it was like after that when you were... Sounds, sounds like me. <laughs> um... Well, I think everybody felt, I mean, we were hit hard by that. Uh, you don't you don't realize how, how hard it is until you go to seven funerals uh, and meet with the families of the people who have lost their loved ones. And yet, at the same time, every one of those families came up to me and said, uh, my loved one was doing what they, they love to do. And I want to make sure that you do everything possible to continue the mission that they were involved with. That mission, as he discussed with interviewer Mary Jordan, included the hunt for Osama bin Laden, whose location was still a complete mystery at the time. Under you, the use of drones really escalated. And while it was an effective tool and got militants, it also killed a lot of civilians and was quite controversial. Um, What do you think about killing from the sky like that? You know, I, when, I, when I became a CIA director uh, and I went to uh, my predecessor, uh, Mike Hayden, I mean, Hayden, you know, we talked about intelligence responsibilities and uh, developing intelligence sources, et cetera. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, he said, you're also going to be a combatant commander. I said, what the hell are you talking about? And he described uh, the operations that we were involved with. Uh, and I... I suddenly realized he was absolutely right. I was a combatant commander. We were using uh, our capabilities to target al-Qaeda's leadership. And we were using something that was new and effective technology uh, in in war. And uh, look, I mean, let's understand, when 9-11 happens, and our country is attacked by Al-Qaeda, and 3,000 people are killed in this country. We went to war. We went to war uh, to go after those who had uh, attacked our country. And you know, we go after them in Afghanistan, but they eventually make their way uh, and escape into Pakistan. So our enemy, people that are planning another 9-11 type attack, are operating in Pakistan. Normally, if you have an enemy, 
You can take an F-16 or a B-2 bomber and go and, and blow them up. Uh, you couldn't do that in Pakistan because Pakistan wouldn't allow us to do that. Or you take troops, special forces, and put them on the ground and go after people. Couldn't do that either in Pakistan because they wouldn't let us do it. So we have an enemy that's planning an additional attack in this country. How do you go after them? You have to use the kind of technology that we had the ability uh, to, to use, which is to target people and then to go after them. And we did it effectively. And it is a precise technology. It is, uh, it is something that requires a tremendous amount of surveillance. But there have been mistakes. Well, of course, there's mistakes in war in a number of uh, ways. I mean, people who are in combat make mistakes. But the issue is, are we responsible for protecting the people of this country, or aren't we? And are we going to exercise that responsibility in a responsible way? And the fact is, when we went after targets, uh, we made very clear we're not going to fire if there are women or children uh, in the line of fire. And we made that decision. Uh, and it was very precise. And we did undercut uh, the leadership of Al-Qaeda. Uh, were there mistakes? Were there innocent people killed? You bet. But what if we had dropped uh, an F-16 bomb on a compound? You don't think there would have been collateral damage? Damn right there would have been collateral damage. If we had used a B-2 bomber to drop a bomb on a, on, a, on a compound, it would have wiped out the whole village. Collateral damage? Damn rights. But if you're just using a single weapon to go after an individual, that's a precise way to go after somebody who's trying to kill Americans. And I think it was effective. Then along came, you got your sights on bin Laden. And a day in 2011, you wrote, my own place in history would almost certainly be defined by what happened next. I fingered my rosary beads and members of the president's team in Washington at Langley and in Afghanistan spent the next fretful minutes with what was going to happen next. Tell us, bring us back to that moment when you were waiting to see if you really got bin Laden. Huh. You're saying your prayers. <laughs> well, we have, we go with the operation. The president says we got, you know, we really should conduct this operation. We've decided on uh, using the SEALs uh, commando raid. Uh, two teams of SEALs, two helicopters going in 150 miles at night into Pakistan to go after this compound. Uh, it was a hell of a mission uh, and very risky. And, uh, you know, frankly, when we were in the National Security Council, a majority of the people, National Security Council, thought it was too risky. Uh, I thought that we should do it. I recommended that to the president. Uh, and the president, to his credit, made the decision to go. So I'm at CIA. Uh, we are conducting the operation from CIA because it's a covert operation. I'm in charge. Bill McRaven, who's head of Special Forces, is located in, uh, in Afghanistan, and he's tracking it from there. Uh, the helicopters go in. We, f we track them uh, into the compound. And then something happens that, uh, you know, <laughs> it's one of those nightmares that you, you wonder if it's going to screw up everything. One of the helicopters goes down. It had been hot that day, and heat from the ground stalled one of the engines. Uh, but to the credit of that pilot, uh, he was able to set down the uh, helicopter. Uh, the tail was up on a wall. And uh, I remember saying to McRaven, what the hell's going on? He said, don't worry. He was cool as, 
cool as a cucumber. He said, uh, don't worry, I've got a backup helicopter coming in. Our, our special forces are gonna go in, they're gonna breach the walls, they're gonna keep going with the mission. I said, God bless you, let's get it done. Uh, there was a moment of silence, uh, actually almost 20 minutes of silence. We heard gunfire at the beginning of that. Are you watching a screen? We are doing surveillance, let me put it that way. And, uh, but we've not, we don't know exactly what's happening. I, I know there's gunfire that tells you something. And then about 20 minutes later, it's probably the longest 20 minutes of my life. Uh, McRaven comes back over uh, the uh, uh, communications and says, I think we have Geronimo. Geronimo was the code word for locating uh, Bin Laden. Uh, and we all kind of tensed up. There was a few more minutes, again, the longest in my life. And he comes back and he said, we have Geronimo. Uh, and uh, I suddenly felt all of this has really paid off. And you know, there, it was a moment when I thought about the victims of 9-11 and their families. Three days before bin Laden was killed in that operation, President Obama announced he was nominating Leon Panetta as Secretary of the Department of Defense. The Senate voted 100 to 0 to confirm him. He served in that job from 2011 to 2013. During that time, he announced women would be allowed in combat, and he extended as many benefits as were legally allowed at the time to same-sex military couples. Some of the issues he was involved with at the Pentagon are still unfolding. The Iran nuclear deal, for example, which President Trump continues to slam. Panetta says he wishes the United States had been tougher on Iran's support for terrorism and their development of missiles, but he believes that tearing up the deal at this point would give Iran a free ticket to develop nuclear weapons. Then there is the matter of Syria. Interviewer Mary Jordan asked Panetta, whether President Obama made a mistake when he declined to bomb Syria after the regime used chemical weapons. Oh, I don't think there's any question. Uh, once the president drew that line, and I, I frankly thought it was the right line to draw. There, you, you know, they have chemical weapons. Uh, these are weapons that are, that are brutal, that, are, uh, that violate international law. Uh, and I think it was important for the president to say, you know, we're not going to accept the use of, of chemical weapons uh, by, by, this, by Assad. And so it, it, I thought it was important. Anyway, once the President of the United States sets that line, that red line, that becomes the word of the United States of America. And I think when that line is crossed, you have a responsibility to enforce that red line. How damaging do you think it was to our credibility? I think the failure to uh, enforce that red line uh, and to not hit them uh, as we should have at the, at the point, sent a, sent a terrible message, not only to our enemies, that uh, our word was not worth much, but it also sent a bad message to our allies as to whether or not uh, our word could be depended upon. Uh, and that, I think, weakened, it weakened the United States. And I think as a result of that, I wouldn't be surprised if Putin read that message to become a lot more aggressive. 
uh, in going into the Ukraine and going into Syria and doing the things that Putin did. So I think, I think it is very important that when the United States, and particularly when the President of the United States establishes any kind of red line, and you could argue whether this was the right red line to establish, but once you do that, you've got to back it up. You ran the Pentagon, you ran the CIA. Here we are in 2017. What are you most worried about when it comes to national security now? <sighs> Look, I, I think we're living at a time when there are, there are more flashpoints in the world of uh, 2017, 21st century. More flashpoints, I think, than probably since the end of World War II. Uh, I think if, there's, if you could compare it to anything, it's probably that period in, in 1914. I mean, I think people ought to reread The Guns of August, uh, Barbara Tuckman's book about how uh, world leadership failed to really come to grips with all of the crises that were going on that ultimately led to World War I. Uh, because I, that's what I worry about in today's world. Uh, you know, we've got, we've got flashpoints uh, with, uh, we're still conducting a war on terrorism against uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. Uh, we are dealing with failed states in the Middle East, in Syria, and Libya, uh, and others, uh, breeding grounds for terrorism. We're dealing with Iran, uh, which continues to be a threat. We're dealing with North Korea and the possibility that they could develop an ICBM with a miniaturized nuclear weapon that could literally attack the United States of America. I'm worried that uh, a Russia, uh, that senses weakness on the part of the United States, uh, could make the decision not just to go into the Ukraine, uh, but to go into other former Soviet Union states uh, and try to assert uh, control over those states. I'm worried about China making territorial claims in the South China Sea. We're dealing with cyber attacks. That's the whole new battlefield of the future. Uh, you know, we saw it happen uh, during the election, but the reality is you could use cyber to paralyze a country. So there's a lot of flashpoints out there. And the real question is, is the United States going to provide world leadership to deal with all of those flashpoints? I mean, in recent years, there's been this attitude that somehow, you know, we've, we've fought wars in Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq. Uh, we need to kind of pull back from the world. Other, other countries in the world need to step up and deal with these problems. But the reality is that if the United States doesn't provide leadership on these issues, nobody else will. And our national security will be threatened as a result of that. You have said that you often say the Hail Mary to steady you when you're worried about things. Yeah. Do you pray a lot? you damn right I do. Uh, I've always found... Uh, I've always found Hail Marys to be a great refuge when you're facing uh, tough decisions and crises of one kind or another. I mean, I, I really do believe uh, in, in, in the power of faith having an impact uh, on the course of things in this world. But I also know, I mean, I, there's, a, there's a great story that I tell that I think makes the point very well. Uh, a Jesuit told me this, about a rabbi and the priest who decided they would get to know each other a little better. And so they decided to go to events and decided they, if by going to events they could talk and they'd learn about each other's faith. So they go to a boxing match. 
And just before the bell rang, one of the boxers makes the sign of the cross. And the rabbi nudges the priest and said, what does that mean? The priest says, it doesn't mean a damn thing if he can't fight. And I think that's something we all need to remember, is that we can bless ourselves with the hope that things are going to be fine. But it frankly doesn't mean a damn thing unless we're willing to fight for it. That is Leon Panetta, who these days happily spends his time in California at the Panetta Institute for Public Policy. But there is a new Panetta in Washington, carrying on the family tradition. Jimmy Panetta, who was born during his dad's stint in the Nixon administration, is now the freshman congressman representing California's 20th district, which includes Monterey. This is what it takes from the Academy of Achievement I'm Alice Winkler. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the Catherine B. Reynolds Foundation for funding what it takes. See you next time.